Jumbo, Jumbo everybody, Jumbo, Jumbo Caribou. My name is Dr. Ruth Vitamomo Akumbo. I am the host of Jumbo Dr. Akumbo podcast, bringing you cultural relevant multifaceted conversations and reflection intersecting education, entertainment, and business dedicated to diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DIB, and cultural capacity building. Today, we will be talking about legalities in DIB. My guest is Dean Shalak Richards. Dean Richards is a justice advocate. She earned her JD at Pepperdine University School of Law in 2012 and a BA from Spelman College. Dean Richards currently serves as the Dean of Student Diversity and Belonging at the Caruso School of Law at Pepperdine University. Let's work on Dean Richards. Jumbo, Jumbo Dean Richards, Jumbo. Jumbo Dr. Akumbo. <laughs> Thank you for joining. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. <laughs> I love your bio. I was like reading it. And I think one of the things that stand out is your smile. Oh. Like, your smile. Like I smile big. So sometimes I look at myself and be like, oh my God, I'm showing. <laughs> so it's nice to see somebody else that smiles big. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you get all my joy. When I smile yeah. at you, you're getting all my joy. <laughs> Yes, yes. And I, I could feel it. Like, it really, like, made my heart warm to just see that big smile. Every oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> Thank you. You're so kind. <laughs> so we are going to start, and I'm going to jump in by just saying, will you please, Um, I do this little thing where we talk about the names, your names, like, Shalak, did I say it right? Yes, like, yes. And why Shalak? Like, do you know why your parents named you that? And what does that name mean to you? This or what it meant to your parents, but to you as a person? So I know the story that my parents tell me. We never quite know how much is true or not. <laughs> but the story goes that my father wanted to, uh, let me back up. My family's Jamaican. Um, I'm Jamaican Canadian. I was born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, but oh. uh, my parents both separately immigrated from Jamaica to Canada. Oh, and okay. they wanted a name that to them felt very significant culturally. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently, while my mom was still pregnant, my father wanted to name me Shaka after Shaka Zulu. Zulu. He uh -huh. wanted a warrior. Uh -huh. <laughs> he wanted a warrior. <laughs> and my mom was like, don't know if I like that name for my baby. <laughs> and so one of my uncles was researching um, perhaps East African names okay. and came across this name, Shalak, which is we've seen since a more typical last name in Egypt. Yeah. And so they found it. More Egypt than East African. So yes. Since then, we found it's actually more in Egypt. Yeah. Um, and when they found it, they were told that the meaning was beautiful or to beautify and oh. so they named me that wanting me to beautify the world right. um and i've since you know and that's what it's come to mean to me when i was a child i'll be honest i didn't really like my name because i thought it was too different yeah. no one ever knew how to say it yeah. i grew up in the time where you know i was in school and everyone was named ashley or Brittany or 
you know, Elizabeth, like something very sort of standard, yeah. right? Yeah. And now doing the work I do, I think about what it means to have a standard name that's easy and perhaps not as connected to a culture. Um, but since I've gotten older, I've seen the beauty in what my parents were trying to communicate. And so my first name, Shalak, means beautiful or to beautify. My, I have two middle names, one that each of my parents gave me, um, Kazia, which yes. is from the Bible, one of Job's daughters in Job chapter 42, when he got everything restored to him and he had three more daughters and his daughters are named and one of their names is Kazia, oh, also meaning great. to beautify. Yeah. And then Patricia, which was my mother's middle name yeah. um, and my grandmother before her, which means noble woman. And so when we put it together, my family wants me to be a beautiful, beautiful, noble woman, woman. in the world. And it's been something I try to live up to. In the night. Oh, that is so beautiful. This is why I do the name thing. Because yeah. I learn so much about the person and just how they live their life. The value they carry with them simply by a name that was given to them, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, a little bit about my names. Ruth was a Bible name. I came from my, my parents. I don't think I've mentioned this ever on the podcast, but my parents, my grandparents were the first people to uh, to have a missionary spirit, like Kennedy to the village. My uncle was the main pastor, but my, my dad, my grandpa, uh, was supported my uncle and things like that in that mission. So we kind of were like the first generation to start having like this really Bible name. His name was Joseph. I don't know when oh, wow. in time they gave him that name, but his name was Joseph. Um, but in that family line, we had that missionary kind of like adopting the Christian way of life, not too far removed. So um, so it, they gave me the name Ruth and every member of my family has a Christian name except my youngest brother, whose name is Evis, because the doctor that delivered him was Evis. Oh. <laughs> so you go with a bunch of Bible names and all of a sudden Evis. <laughs> like, God. I break the tradition. Um, yeah, then my middle name, he, which I was like you, I, I did not use my middle name because mm -hmm. I thought it was too long. It was just too complex to explain to people. I'm just going to go with the easy name. So I went with, uh, my name was Vitamamo. Vitamamo simply means they're talking about me. And the mm -hmm. whole yeah, the whole history was my dad had an accident when he was young and then he he lost his hair. Not when he was young, he was like in his in his maybe late forties, fifty, and he lost his hearing completely. And then I think his first wife had divorced him or something, and then he was kind of like a single man, and at that time, a single man that is it kind of educated, has a good job no wife that was kind of like what's wrong with you so people would gossip about mm. him, a single man with no kids and all of that and so when he finally remarried and had a kid guess what he did they're talking about me like let them remind them they were talking about him and he knew what they were talking about and now look at me i have a daughter uh, which I didn't really like. <laughs> Why smack me with that? But these days, what I do is I just adopt it and I say, in life, they're going to talk about you. Mm -hmm. But what am I going to do about it? Am I going to yeah. do my best to make it in a way that when they talk about me, um, 
it's something positive. Can I create something positive for people to talk about as far as I am concerned? And if they're talking about me, then I could just slap that thing on my back shirt and say, I know you're talking about me. <laughs> Call it a day. That's so good. I love that. And you're right. You know, I might start doing that in class, even asking students like one person a week, the story behind their name, because look how much we learn about each other and how we choose to move forward in the world. It is incredible. It is incredible. So try it and update yes. now. It works for you. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. So I saw that you've been, uh, you're the Dean of uh, a student and diversity, equity, inclusion or diversity, belonging diversity and belonging at uh, mm -hmm. Caruso. It took me a minute. I was like, wait, Caruso, Caruso. So it took me a minute <laughs> to say it, to really get it right. And um, how long have you been in this position? And you were immigration lawyer before that. You want to just throw a little bit about your background? Yes, absolutely. So I graduated from, at that time, we weren't renamed. So it was Pepperdine Law when I graduated. And I practiced immigration law for about six years. Um, after graduating primarily in removal defense. So I was in, in immigration court with people who were fighting for the opportunity to remain in the country um, or to lower the consequences if they chose to leave the country to give them the opportunity, many of whom had families to not be permanently separated from their family members or be in difficult positions. Mm -hmm. um, about five years ago, May 2018, I got a call from the school saying that they were looking for someone in a position um, in our career development office. And while I loved practice, would I ever consider leaving active practice and perhaps coming to the school and administration? And so I prayed about it and talked to family and friends and um, ultimately chose to move forward with the interview. And of course, long story, fast forward, right? I obviously got it, took the job. Yeah. And so I came back to the law school in August 2018 in career services and so really focused on helping students figure out what their purpose was in the law and how to find jobs that were meaningful for them but move them along career-wise. In October 2019, um, the dean of the law school said to me that the law school was very interested in being forward moving in areas of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Mm -hmm. And we had never at the law school had someone do work in that area at the dean level. We had in the past sometimes had assistant directors or even a director, but no one at the dean level. And so he said, while I loved um, my work in career services, would I ever consider focusing on that for the school at the dean level? And I agreed to begin the following academic year, which would have been August 2020, um, to be assistant dean of diversity and belonging. And then we added student life onto there because we wanted to expand some of that. Of course, we all know that was in October 2019 and life changed for all of us in very dramatic ways in March 2020 and then going forward. Yes. Right? And so Nonetheless, I stepped into the role in August 2020 as Assistant Dean of Student Life and Diversity and Belonging. And then the following year, I became Associate Dean of Student Life and Diversity and Belonging. And now this academic year, I'm Dean of Students, Diversity and Belonging. And my work, our office, of course, focuses on our student experience, both from recruitment all the way through and after graduation and when they become alumni. Um, but I 
we also think about our staff experience, our mm -hmm. faculty experience, our relationship to the community, be it the legal community or the broader community, what it means to help our justice system be one that all people can see themselves in. And truly fundamentally to me, um, be a system where whether it's immigration or criminal or tax or real estate or a corporate negotiation, right? That we can have everyone have trust in that system because they know that it is truly being administered in a way that is fair and cognizant that all people belonging in it. And unfortunately, through much of our history, people haven't had that trust right. in our system. Um, and for many people, that's rooted in what they, they have experienced or seen sort of generationally as inequities. And so helping to rectify those inequities, I think, helps to further justice. Yes. And it's true because you... You're in that position where you're preparing also these minds that will go out there and mm -hmm. build these systems and here uh, formulate the systems of the future. Yeah. So um, it's great that you were in the field actually doing the work, but how amazing is it that you are in a position to shape the minds that are going to create that future that we want, that is more equitable and start rebuilding this trust. The one thing that I, I picked up being in classrooms with students is just learning how to trust one another. Mm -hmm. Also learn how to trust one another and deal with these inequities and have even those the dialogues. When I step out of the classroom, I am more prone to trusting these people or people that look like them or if they one of them call me for something, I can trust them because I've gone through this process with them. I know them. I know what they think. I know how they think about issues and, and all of that. So it makes life for me outside of the classroom a lot more functional and a lot more uh, uh, easy to, to handle some of these things that might be have become barriers because I really didn't know this person, I don't trust them, or I haven't gone through this process where the school itself is cares about DEIB and um, wants to uh, help me as a student when I go out there be a better, better servant. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's what I was going to reflect on. No, I was just going to say, you know, I tell our students all the time that the goal of our office and hopefully the goal of the law school is to help our students be really good thinkers. Mm -hmm. um, and so I say, you know, the goal isn't for all of you to think about an issue the exact same way I do or the exact same way maybe Dr. Akumbu might or a faculty member or a fellow student. But I want you to be really good thinkers. I want you to be able to engage with really difficult issues and to be able to, as my colleagues in mediation and alternative dispute resolution might say, to sit in the conflict, mm -hmm. to, to sit in that difficult space and to engage with nuance. You know, I, I say sometimes in trainings that I like to use the words of Shrek. Everyone's an onion, right? With a lot of layers and peeling back the layers is what really good diversity and inclusion work does. And that's what creates a sense of belonging that we can see each other for more than just what's in front of each other. And we can think about issues and we might come to a place where we have trust that even if we don't come to the same conclusion on an issue, 
that because we've taken the time to really think and understand what's the other perspective, what might that be rooted in? Am I open to hearing where that's coming from? Then when I make a decision or I reflect on an issue, you have trust of the heart that it's coming from and that it's been well-reasoned. And we again, we might not come to the same conclusion on it, but we can have a real intensive and reflective moments about it and having that kind of as you said that trust with one another is what moves us forward and i think i know we may get to this, some of this question later but i think what causes discord in organizations be they for-profit non-profit government societally is that we've lost the ability to sit in trust with one another mm. and be willing to go past what you first see about somebody and so if you just look at me you've made a decision about how i must think how i must operate what i like to eat like all of these things we've decided that all of those things mean something and we're not willing to investigate further than what we've decided those mean in a way that will help us to move forward you know yeah i i i 100 agree like um that you you just nailed the heart of it like i i the way one thing i've always considered is what is the heart of the person mm sounding like like the person might say something that might not come across right but do i know them enough and do i know their heart enough can i take what their heart was actually trying to say more than what their mouth was articulating mm -hmm. so yeah i really love that that you mentioned like the whole trust thing comes also by knowing the heart of the person right know the heart of the person it's easier to trust and you cannot know the heart of the person if you haven't really seen them sit through some of this difficult yeah. things or go through that peeling process we're best friends with some people because those people have seen us through it all and they know our heart they know how we're going to operate in every situation even if we operate really badly they know us and they know our heart so yeah it is i'm so glad that you mentioned that and i want to say like anything that comes up question wise like just dive in don't worry about about it it's just yeah well, you know, something that just came up when you were saying that too, I think the other side, sorry, I just yeah. something. the other side of knowing the heart of the person is then you're also more willing to accept correction, right? So sometimes people will, especially in, in very sensitive issues that hit who we are deeply, people will say, well, if you know my heart, then you should know I didn't mean that. Mm -hmm. And so like, why are we still talking about this? You know, just forgive me and move on but the other side of it is then if we have trust i'm willing to accept you know what we might think of uh, biblically as correction or conviction right we're not condemning you we're not saying you're doomed forever <laughs> having that relational trust means then when i say to you hey dr akumbu when you did this it really hurt me or when this happened you know then you're going oh my goodness that's not my intent so one i'm going to tell you that's not my intent but two i'm going to Think about what I can do differently so I'm not hurting you again because I want to be in relationship. And sometimes it can be close. Sometimes it's just like we want a good relationship societally or we want a good relationship in our in our company. We want a positive company culture. And that means that we have to be able to relate to one another in a way that allows us to both hear 
someone's heart, but also sit in a little bit of correction about what it means to create a space where people can be authentically themselves. Right. Wow. That's an amazing contribution. Thank you for catching mm-hmm. that sharing. <laughs> yeah, because it's like sometimes you know how we are with correction too. It's mm-hmm. like we give correction and sometimes we'll fight it, we'll fight it, we'll fight yeah. it. We go back and we sit on it, we think about it, and we accept it, and we start to implement it. But it takes that trust. It takes like, mm-hmm. okay, is this person always picking on me? Or is this person mm-hmm. really, do I really need to consider this? <laughs> so yeah, that is that is super, that is um, yeah. heart, heart to heart, heart to heart, right? Like heart to heart with, with, with these issues. And um, one of the struggles that I had with, especially during the Floyd period and the riots and things like that. One of the biggest struggles I had was the people that were always defensive. Mm. Like when I try to communicate, okay, this is how I feel. This is my experience. Um, This is what I think based on my experiences it's like the pushback, the defense, the like, oh, you're trying to create uh, a, disc- a discord, right? Is it discord? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the church, for example, like the church is supposed to be like, oh, a unity place and we're all like together, we're one, we're not like, so when you, when you, when I brought up things like that and I, I hear people that push back because Oh, this is this you're trying to 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 not to break the unity of the church. I I did feel a bit confused, um, and I think that looking at Pepperdine as a Christian college, I have I really admire the way Pepperdine has been able to just navigate. Right, mm-hmm. like I don't know how you all do it. <laughs> Maybe you can share a little bit of your secret with us because it's like as a Christian college, you are dealing with these really complex issues, but you still have students from every walk of life. Mm-hmm. How do you manage that? Because I feel like that's Pepperdine has a secret ingredient that most schools have just categorized everything as work ideology. Everything is work mm-hmm. ideology. Don't bring work into the church. So basically telling me not to talk about my identity and how it affects me. I only accept the identity of Christ. Um, if I do anything other than that, I'm causing uh, confusion. It, it's complicated because yeah. it doesn't change the fact, as a Christian, it doesn't change the fact that these are real issues that still impact me as a black woman. Yeah. You know, I think, so one, I'm so glad that you all think we're doing something right. <laughs> Not that we're not, but you know, sometimes when you're in the middle of work, you're like, oh man, is this landing? Is it, is it moving? I can speak for myself and what I've tried to do at the law school and even in being on the university diversity council. And I have to say, having the opportunity to work with Dr. Jay Goosby Smith, who's our university's new chief diversity officer and senior vice president for community belonging and um, her assistant vice president, Dr. April Harris Akinloye, both have been phenomenal women with real vision. And while I started in my role before they came, I'm just so immeasurably blessed to be able to work alongside them. You know, I think some of it in, in the graduate school of, I'm going to give everyone a shout out here today, but the graduate <laughs> school of education and psychology, where I know you yes. have experience a few weeks ago. Um, I want to say it was on February 15th, so I guess a month ago now, 
held as part of their Margaret J. Weber series, a panel on prioritizing the humanity of DEI. And I think that that is one of the things that foundationally has helped us as an institution, both as a university and as a law school, to navigate some of the challenges you're talking about. Mm. That for me, um, without even faith in it, which is hard for me to say, but for me, at base, what all people want is to be seen and heard and valued, right? People want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to be valued. They want to be known as a human being who has dignity and worth. When you add faith onto that, if we believe truly that all people are created in the image of God and carry the ruah, the breath of life inside of them, then even more should we not be showing their humanity the dignity that we would show others. Hebrews says to be careful how we treat strangers because we might be entertaining angels among us. And so if we're approaching the other person with the view that they are someone who holds the image of God, the very breath of God breathed into them, they may be strangers to us, but they are angels in God's eyes. And in fact, whether they choose to believe and confess Christ or not, if they were the only person who needed him, he still would have stretched his arm on the cross yeah. and died and been risen just for them then we're going to approach them very differently than we do if we don't believe they're worthy. Right. Right. And so that starts with, of course, then how we might treat people who have been historically excluded or underrepresented from our institutions. Um, but it will also impact how we treat people who might be sometimes for the first time coming face to face with what it means to not have been underrepresented mm. or to not have been excluded because they too want to be seen and heard and valued. And what I think is at some of, not all, some of it is political strategy, I think, but I think what's at some of the concern is a real fear of what does it mean if you're saying, are you saying that I'm only in my position because of something that's beyond my control? Yeah. Because when you're saying that, what you're saying is that I'm also not seen, I'm also not valued my hard work doesn't have contribution right and so the first thing is communicating to all people you are here because you are a valuable member of our community you are here because you matter you're not here because of coincidence you're here because god divinely appointed you to be in our community at this time right now what you might also have to sit with is that there are some people who maybe also should have had an opportunity to be here and for things outside of their control, that opportunity wasn't afforded to them. So what does it mean for us to, to think about expanding our table to include more people? We're not kicking you out of the table. We're expanding our table to include more people. We're expanding, you know, the banquet that Christ talked about. We're expanding that banquet to include more people, to create a reflection of what Revelations tells us will happen in heaven where people of every creed, every tongue, every tribe will come together. We're expanding that to create a little bit of that here. Right. And I think when people hear it from that perspective, they're like, oh, well, this isn't about me being wrong. Mm -hmm. This is about what it means like to help more people have the experience I've had. You know, right. and so I think that's, that's one approach wow. that I think is helpful. 
The other to me, and I say this particularly to Christians, mm -hmm. is if we believe that we're truly one body, right? That Peter and Corinthians and Romans tells us we are truly one body and no member of the body is more exalted or less exalted than another. In fact, in Romans, I think it is, but it might've been in first Corinthians, but I think it's in Romans where Paul says, the parts of the body that we think are released, mm -hmm. we actually put more attention to <laughs> because we are more cautious of taking care of them, right? Yes. But yes. if we're one body, then if my foot tells me something is hurting it, mm -hmm. as the I, my job is to stop the pain to my foot. Right. Whether I believe it, whether I agree with it, whether I think it's the foot's problem, we know physiologically, right, through biology, that if you, you think your pinky toenail doesn't matter until it gets ripped off, <laughs> <laughs> and then the rest of your body is in pain. Yeah. You, know, you think that strand of hair doesn't matter until it gets caught on a zipper and you're like, oh, yeah. That hurts, right? And so if we really are one body in Christ, then when my sister, Dr. Akumbu, says, I'm in pain, my response as a part of her body should also be to feel that pain. Yes. And then my response as a part of the body is to say, how can I remove it? Mm -hmm. Can I remove the pain? Can I remove the thing that's causing the pain? Can I help create solutions mm -hmm. so that we don't revisit this pain again and again and again? Mm -hmm. And I think that what happens in, in the idea of sowing division or sowing discord is in fact, and I'm, uh, I should say for your listeners, I grew up in a very charismatic Pentecostal church, so I'm quick to go into spiritual warfare and all that stuff. <laughs> I, I do believe it's an attack of the enemy. And I don't believe that the attack is so-called wokeness. I think the attack is wanting us to not be willing to talk to each other about our pain so that instead we're more likely to sever off parts of our body, you know? And just say, well, I'll just take an anti, you know, some pain meds and not have to do it. Because that's easier. Yeah. It's easier yeah. to dull it, yeah. which is what the calls for don't talk about it. That's the equivalency of taking two Advil and going to bed. You didn't yeah. fix the problem, right? Keep <laughs> dealing with this headache over and over and over again. I would yeah. go see a doctor if my body were having this yeah. and I was dealing with the same problem for three weeks in a row. I would go see a doctor and say, something's wrong. I need this to be fixed. Mm -hmm. I can't just live off of medication. Right. As a body, that's, I believe, the point that we're at. Whereas yeah. a body, different parts of the body are saying, something's wrong. We've been dulling it through pain medication, but we need to see a doctor. And how lucky for us that we serve the great physician who wants to heal us, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Wow, that is that that is a perspective. The way you laid it out, I have never really considered it. I think since I have been talking to multiple people, I've always talked about this. I feel like I've talked about it more structurally and actually going a little bit beyond like we are doing right now. Um, and I'm glad you did that because I, I feel really concerned when I talk to people in institutions where they basically just brand everything as work, workness and, and then they brand it as 
a sexuality thing, right? Like it looks at the whole DIB structure or concepts or theories as, oh, this is all about sexuality, but mm-hmm. it is not. It's about humanity. It's about our humanity. It's about like you said, nobody is trying to kick anybody out of the table. We're basically saying, create more room on the table. Listen to this diverse opinion. Hear why I am hurting, and see if you can stop stepping on my toe. Yes, it might be a little toe, but it hurts my whole body when you step on it. Right? Mm-hmm. And if you refuse to even let me say that you're stepping on my toe and it hurts, then you're not doing justice as a Christian institution. You're right. Not- justice as a church you're not doing justice as a human period yeah. Right? Yeah. so yeah. and i think some of my pain is that i truly believe I've, I've said this to people here at pepperdine um the church should be leading these efforts yes. you know whether it's as a christian higher ed institution or as a the church you know sort of capital c as an institution or individual churches and communities or Christians who might be in secular work and in the marketplace. We should be leading this. It should be part of our evangelical witness. I agree. My caring about humanity should be drawing people to Christ, not pushing them away from the experience of the great grace and glory of God, right? And so some of what I say even to, I I ask myself, but I say to other people, is if how we're living is supposed to be a witness of Christ on earth, what is this language saying? Am I pushing people away? That doesn't mean we don't hold convictions. That doesn't mean we don't hold standards. That doesn't mean we don't hold morality, right? Like none of that. But are we operating like Jesus where he drew people first with love and then said, go and sin no more? Yeah. Or are we starting with go and sin no more? <laughs> and they're never willing to, to come to us, yeah. you know? And I, I struggle with, the idea that people who haven't experienced the great grace and forgiveness of God are more concerned with the experiences of human beings than people who are supposed to be reflecting his love on earth. Oof, yeah, that hurts. Yeah. That actually hurts. And I, I think that was one of my uh, biggest struggles during the Joy Floyd period. I felt, mm-hmm. I really felt hurt by the way the church handled it i i just i just felt really hurt and i was just like thank god that i know him mm-hmm. right instead of triangular yeah it's first and then that right so um i i without that i i, I probably would just be a mess <laughs> well, i had the same experience but something that i was pointed to was someone gave me a new a new interpretation of Hebrews chapter mm-hmm. uh, 11 and 12, but where it talks about being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses and that Hebrews 11 sort of goes through the hall of faith, as it were, right, with all these people who, and what they pointed out to me is one of those verses towards the end where it says, and there are many more where we don't have time to list them. And someone said to me, think about all of the people, whether it's people from my Jamaican ancestry or, you know, Um, Black people in the United States or whomever, who are part of that many more, Mm -hmm. where their faith pushed them to fight for equality, their faith Mm -hmm. pushed them. And those aren't all people of color. There are wonderful people from all backgrounds, all experiences, all ethnicities, who have seen the goodness of God and fought for equality in the earth. 
And so this is a snapshot in time. But if I winded my view about Christianity, yes, and what it means to be a Christian, I see that this response is a very, very, very small part of the Christian response to injustice in the earth. And that gives me more, more confidence <laughs> in what it means to, to be Christian and more willingness to yeah. continue. And I think as well, more grace towards people who I worry about. And I, I remind myself that the beauty of it is I'm not their judge. God is. Yes. You know, I'm just working, trying to get my good, well done, good and faithful servant. Yours is up to you. <laughs> All I can do is tell you what I think, you know, it looks like to model Jesus on earth and you right. do with it what you will. That's not my, my responsibility. <laughs> right. Wow. That is incredible. Yeah. I love that you said that because um, it's easy to forget that. It's easy to forget that. And that reminded me, like, one of the things that I said during that period was that I might take really strong stands, but I have friends that are white, black, Asian, and across the board that love me, and I love them deeply. Mm -hmm. So when I take a stand against injustice, it's not an attack on one race. It's not an attack on one group. It's an, it's me taking a stand against injustice. If I yeah. saw that being done against another, a black person to a black person, I would take the same stand. A white person to a white person, I would take the same stand. So taking a stand against injustice doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden I do not have love for anybody else. <laughs> right. right. And you know, the saying, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? Mm -hmm. So yes. if I put a stand against injustice on behalf of this person, yes, it helps everybody else, Yes, you know? And so I think that's something where sometimes helping organizations to think about that. We are implementing these policies really to be helpful to everybody else. Right. What does it mean when in HR and hiring, we ask people to actually document why someone isn't a good fit, right? Like something that has historically been language that allows for biases to come into play or stereotypes to be there. Yes. Well, when we say that, we're also helping, you know, a white woman who might one day want to be a mother. Right. And and might be concerned that she'll not be viewed as truly committed to the company. Mm -hmm. You know, when we say, or the the white man who might think, oh man, I would love to be able to take paternity leave, but if I do that, they're not going to, well, putting in place these policies that are, we might just see as helpful to women actually ends up helping that man to build yeah. a better relationship, to be a better father, to spend time with his family, to have his first ministry be at home, right? Like we are actually helping all people when we do, when we do some of these things, we are actually helping everyone because me helping you think about your biases is also helping me think about mine. Very true. And how I might be treating you and I don't even realize it. Right. You know? So I, I want organizations to also be thinking not in the negative, like, oh, we have to do this so we don't get sued. We have to do this so we're legally compliant. Well, the law doesn't say we have to do that so we don't have to do it. That's right. not the point. In this time where people, and we, we've seen data um, that younger people are making more and more decisions to leave jobs and leave companies that they don't feel have an organizational culture that they're interested in. If an organization has thoughtful policies geared towards creating belonging in their culture, 
then people are going to want to work there. Mm-hmm. They're going to be invested. Yeah. They're going to want the mission. And again, that's not creating policies that say everybody has to vote the same way or think <laughs> the same way or do the same thing, but creating policies that say we value you as a human being. Mm-hmm. We're invested in your success. That builds trust so that when upper levels make decisions, people trust where the decision came from. Right. And they're not questioning and going against everything, you right. know? because they trust that it's being made in a way that values the humanity of the people who work there and their constituency. Right. Wow. It comes back to trust, right? Always back. It keeps coming back to trust. Now that you mentioned policies, the one thing that I have wondered is, or that people um, uh, I've talked about, and it seems to be a little bit milky, is what are the legalities? What is the main thing that you're like, you have to have this when it comes to DEIB. What is the, 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 the things that you think are general common sense that policies that are being encouraged and those policies that you cannot not do if mm-hmm. your institution or a company don't do those things, it is possible that you'll be penalized somehow. Yeah, so I mean, in the US context, you have to think about things like Title Seven. Yes. Um, and sort of all the accompanying um, equal opportunity, equal employment opportunity laws that may go with it, right? And so in the United States, at least, because I know you have a global reach, so I don't want to say. Let's talk about United States. But in the United States, at least, you know, organizations need to be thoughtful about both their state and federal laws, right? Which may apply to different people. So for example, Title VII doesn't apply to companies Broadly, doesn't apply to organizations or companies with fewer than 14 employees. But a state law may. So you still have to be mindful of that. And I mean, you know, I tell people all the time, it's the floor, not the ceiling. So it's the base, right? That it means that people have the right to be hired, to be promoted, to work in a space um, with being free from discrimination um, or intimidation based on a protected category race, gender, now um, following a Supreme Court decision, sex or sexuality, um, national national origin, uh, disability status, military status, those, those, it's about six or seven protected categories. And so that's the base. But outside of very narrow parameters, almost no company, no organization, government or otherwise, is required to have diversity programming. It's not a legally mandated thing, right? You are required not to discriminate (laughs) and to be able to show that you're not discriminating against people. But that can look like a lot of things, which is why it's just the base. It's just the entry point. Um, Now, what can companies not do? You are not permitted under Supreme Court uh, opinion and interpretation thereof to have any quotas. So you Mm -hmm. can't say, oh man, I've re- looked around and realized that we don't have enough people of Korean descent in our company. And so in the next year, we're going to hire 10 Korean people. Yeah. Well, that's a quota and you're not allowed to have that, right? Or as an educational institution to say, we are going to increase our student body by 20% Koreans. <laughs> you can't do that, right? That, that's impermissible. But can you say, we've realized that our policies might have held people back. 
And so we are going to intentionally recruit from areas that have high Korean populations. Mm -hmm. We're going to, you know, someone wants to give a scholarship because they recognize perhaps that Korean students had financial difficulties and we want to ensure that they have opportunities to help financially so that they can attend our institution. That's permissible, right? right? But you can't say we're only going to admit Korean students this year because we need to catch up. That's a legally impermissible quota. But I hope we see that there's a lot of room in between there. <laughs> there's a lot of space to be really creative and thoughtful. And I encourage organizations to be creative, to be thoughtful, to think about the type of people that they want working there or that they want to serve who their customer base is, who the students might be. Um, and remember, you know, again, in peeling back the onions, peeling back the layers, you might not have, you know, someone might say, we don't have a lot of black women. And so we're going to get more black women in and we're going to recruit more black women. Okay, well, but we're not all the exact same. We know yes. I said, I'm Jamaican Canadian. Cameroon American. <laughs> yeah, you know, and so you, what's the type of black woman that you want? Mm. Can you think, be thoughtful about that? Is it important to have someone who has the experience of being born and raised in the United States? Is it important to think about the immigrant experience that people have had? And when people start to think like that, I find that they're also a lot more thoughtful about who they're bringing in and what their experience is. Mm -hmm. And they avoid what can become very difficult for diversity programming, which is tokenizing yeah. the people that are brought in. When you ask me what are my views on Juneteenth, it's going to be different than someone who was born and raised in Texas. True. Just, <laughs> right? Like, that's just a fact. Yeah. And it might be it good or bad, but yeah. wow, if you had a panel of three people and one was you, Dr. Akumbu, and one was me, and one was a Black woman born and raised in Texas, yeah. what a richer conversation you have around the experience of Juneteenth. That. <laughs> right? Like, it's richer, it's better, it's better for your thought, it's better for us as a yeah. community right. to think through. But we flatten people sometimes mm -hmm. in yeah. our programming because we're just thinking to check what? boxes yes. rather than to have the fullness. And again, I, I bring it full circle, the fullness of people's humanity. Yes, I, I think that's what I was feeling as you were wrapping this and bringing this, bringing it all uh, together. It's just that humanity. Humanity mm -hmm. is about humanity more than anything. It's not about somebody is going to penalize you. Yes, common culture might be like boycotting some of your stuff because you are not respectful of the humanity in all of mm -hmm. us. But at the same time, no, it's not something that the book, the government is going to throw a book at you about. It's about our humanity. And look at it from that perspective mm -hmm. is encouraging. It is very encouraging because the battle, like with, with Pepperdine, like I was saying, and, and more than most uh, uh, Christian institutions is just being able to see people from all walks of society, whether they, they're LGBTQ people, whether they're black people, Asian people, what kind, all groups of people being there, still being able to navigate and the school still being able to keep its Christianity is really fascinating. And I think, and I, I, I believe from everything I've heard you say is that it boils down to the humanity. It's not yeah. that you're black, white, gay, lesbian, or uh, LGBTQ, no matter what it is, 
disabled, not never disabled, military vet, not anything. Woman, mm -hmm. man, it's just that humanity. You have looked at the humanity. You have said, how do I treat every single person that comes through our university as a human being first before yes. thinking about our own culture or, mm -hmm. as a school or as a Christian institution? Yeah, you know, and I think the other thing in that is also to remember that even within Christianity, there are so many different types of Christian, right? Like, right. you know, and sometimes I say to people, well, when they say, well, that's not Christian, I say, well, which Christian? Because, yes. <laughs> you know, the, the university is affiliated with the Churches of Christ, right? which is a wonderful, you know, organization. I didn't grow up Church of Christ. And so right. the first time I went to the university church, I was like, Where's the band? Where are the <laughs> instruments? What? This isn't worship. Like we need, I need a full-blown praise break. I need music. I need, you know, and, and, and my family's Jamaican. Like I need real beats. I need a bass guitar. This is not, this isn't Christian, you know? And I have a friend, a good friend from law school who's Church of Christ. And she came to, I found a church here in LA. And she came with me and she was like, what is this? It's so loud. It's, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of variation in even how we walk out the Bible. Right, right. Right? And right. there are Christians across the political spectrum, yes. across the ideology spectrum, obviously from different races and nationalities and everything. And so something um, that I grew up learning was to be thoughtful about conflating my culture with my Christianity. Oh, that's good. Mm -hmm. And I think some of what, at least politically, I don't think at Pepperdine, hopefully no. not at Pepperdine, but I think politically what we've seen is a conflation of culture with Christianity. Right. There are some things that in the church I grew up in, we did because it was Jamaican culture. Yeah. Not because it was like in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't against the Bible, but it was like, you know, it's, it's how we did it, right? And that, and then I like moved away for school and I went to a different church and I was like, wait, why are you guys doing this like that? That's not what you're supposed to do. And they're like, that's how we do it. Yeah. And I realized, oh, that had nothing to do with the Bible. Yeah. It was my culture and that's fine. And that's even good. And it's something we can celebrate. But I cannot put down your expression of Christianity because my culture expressed it differently. You know, oh, that's powerful because growing up in Cameroon, I I was surrounded by missionaries. I I went to a Baptist church in my teenage years, but I also had friends who were missionaries and they were trying to plant the church. And the thing about planting a church is that they were coming from this really Southern Baptist, not mm -hmm. Southern Baptist, Southern mm -hmm. Baptist, but like the white Southern Baptist system. And it was so different because all of a sudden I come home for, for the holidays and I'm at church and it's just hallelujah, hallelujah, hymnas, hymnas. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> what's going on? And it took a minute for them. Like, I, I think... I don't think they find they eventually fully grasp why the church became where it became because it started to bring it down. It started to bring it down. Like my family, we, we we started the church and we were like blah blah blah. We had our music, we had our instruments, and da, da, da. And then when they came, it was like 
no you don't clap like that you don't sing what a friend is we have in jesus like that we're like nope that's how we've always said it <laughs> so it was so different they brought in they, they were insisting on having mm. the, their culture in the church no because we've had people in my baptist church in, in where I, I i was going who were american but that followed our culture in the church as mm -hmm. it was the african way of doing it at that baptist church so i was a little bit confounded by these people and going wait why you know wanting me to do it where i do it that's how we know how to do it we tried their way and eventually i think most of us stopped <laughs> yeah, and it's like it's not bad right like we can incorporate it i've yeah. been to really powerful worship services that started with you know the jamaican version of a song and then went into say the Beth a bethel worship yes. song or a hill song song right and then something a cappella and a beautiful yes. old hymn and all of those things can be represented but we'll only let them be represented if we agree that it actually doesn't matter how we sing the song Yes. You know, and that to me is what Paul meant when he said, I became all things to all people so that I could win even one, right? It's me saying, does it really matter at the end of the day how this is done? Or is it more important that the gospel is reaching these people? Right. And so even in my work, sometimes I have to say that to myself. Like, I'll be so frustrated about something. I really wanted this program this way. I really want, you know, and I'm... I'm all upset, right? And I'm like, ah! And then I stop and I have to go, Shalak, does it really matter how this is being done? Or is it more important that there's critical thinking happening? Yes. Is it more important that students are figuring out how to talk to one another? Is it more important that they're culturally competent lawyers? Is it more important that diverse staff are being interviewed, right? Like, does it have to be this way just because you think it has to be this way? Or is it more important that the goal is being accomplished, even if it's not the way that you think, even by best practices in the DEI world, that it should be? Those best practices aren't made for Pepperdine's culture. So is there a way for me to accomplish that goal mm -hmm. even within this culture? And if that's the case, then, you know, is it worth the fight? It's not worth the fight. Sometimes it is. There are, there are times where it's worth the fight. Absolutely. There are times where it's absolutely worth the fight. Yeah. But sometimes better strategy is to let the fight go. Yes. Wow. I I, I am so blessed and I feel like we have to do this again. I would love to. <laughs> this is rich. Like I, I feel like this is a conversation that um even though our listeners might be like, oh, this is a little bit heavy on the Christian, but it is tackling institutions that um don't know how to navigate this in their institution and they're missing out on really incredible work they could be doing across people groups because they are caught up on the woke controversies or because they just think DIB is bringing in a black person that is not qualified to to fit in a, to sit in a position so there is so much to be had there is so much talk to be had about this just to move um our institution further but i want you to give one final your closing statement your exhortation your wrap up work and just what is heavy in your heart to just say before we go um, I think the thing I want to say is that I'm aware that 
you know, everything we've been talking about today feels very much at the individual level. So when I teach this, I teach students that there's a societal level, mm -hmm. institutional, interpersonal, and individual, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm aware that much of what we've been talking about feels like it sits at those bottom two, individual, interpersonal, which can cause frustration for people because they're like, I can only change your heart so much, but if the problem is still there at the societal or institutional level, it doesn't matter how much Dr. Okungu likes me if, you know, this thing is still there. And my rebuttal to that is that, you know, going back to the example of being in the same body, at some point, my body goes, okay, you said you're sorry that I stubbed my toe. You said you're sorry that I stubbed my toe. At some point, a fully developed brain part of that body goes, why are we still stubbing our toe on the same thing? In order to fix the problem for my toe, I need to remove this structural thing. I need to reposition this room or tear down this wall, whatever it may be. Otherwise, I'm going to keep running into that same problem. And if we saw a human being who was still doing that, eventually we'd say, maybe there's a developmental challenge in this person because they don't seem to realize that they keep hitting the same thing over and over. They just need to move that chair or move that wall. Caring about the humanity of people will necessitate taking a hard look at our institutional structures. Because eventually we realize that the structure is not set up to broaden the table. Um, and so I welcome the future conversation around what some of that might look like. I encourage your listeners to think about that conversation. If I really prioritize humanity of the other person sitting across from me, then I'm willing to look at what structures I have in place, what policies I have in place that are inflicting harm on the other people there, and to think about what shifting those structures, modifying those policies means for all of us. And that is not a quick fix. That is not something that happens overnight, and it's not something that everyone is happy about during the process, because it's a hard process to go through and to think about the implications of all of those things. And then it's hard to implement, but it is absolutely worth it on the other side. And yes, this conversation has been sort of heavy on the Christianity, but I would point out that all major religions and even non-faiths prioritize the humanity of the people who come in front of them. Right. And so all of our faiths can find a common point in recognizing that people are inherently worthy of care and dignity and respect. Mm -hmm. And if we start from that point and we agree that everyone is equally intelligent, everyone has capabilities, some people just it looks different, right. then we're going to be willing to remove structures that keep our table smaller instead of widening it. On that note, you're definitely coming back. Let's talk about <laughs> institutional and societal. Let's mm -hmm. point and put that in, and the audience know we've said it. We're gonna do it. Absolutely. <laughs> Dean Richards, this was amazing. This was an amazing beginning to many conversations. I hope this. This. I thank you so much for your time. I thank you so much for your depth of knowledge. I thank you so much for just free flowing with me. I hope that. Uh, it worked for you, my style worked for you, and that we, we, we've shared valuable lessons for others at the individual level and next yeah. time at the institutional and societal level. Thank you so much, Dr. Akumbu, for this, but for all the work that you're doing. It means a lot. You're welcome. Until next time. Thank you. All right. <laughs>